Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this day. Um, Thank you for these men and women in this room who love you and whose lives are directed and only for you, God. And I pray that today would be an encouragement. Um, I pray that you would equip us to help us better engage in the world, um, to be salt and light, uh, to be the embodiment of your good news, God. And I pray that today um, we would come into worship with um, glad hearts, rejoicing, and the good things that you have done. And I ask for your help now to guide us in this discussion. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, good morning. Welcome to another Equip class. Uh, Last week we talked about race, uh, which was fun. Um, Any uh, observations or comments or further reflections from last week when you left you know, things that you might have thought about in, you know, the car on the way home or whatever. One thing that, uh, that I kind of thought of, just absentmindedly, um, you know, we say that, you know, race really doesn't matter, and, you know, it, it doesn't. But it's... You know, we 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 mentioned in the discussion that it's something that we have to work with. We have to work around in, in today's culture, and uh, to put it, you know, quickly. Uh, it, so therefore, it does matter. You know, mm. I guess that's what I got. Mm. Yeah, I um, I think so. I, I've kind of sketched out sort of a theory of race that I had. So I didn't actually answer the question last week. You know, we sort of started with the question, what is race? And um, we sort of looked at what the Bible says and the categories that it has. And then I talked about how, you know, um, just because there's not this same category in the Bible doesn't mean that you can't meaningfully talk about race. Um, but I never actually answered my own question. Um, and uh, I think actually I meant to do that for this week, but I didn't. Uh, so we'll have to come back and let me sketch that out for us. Um, but yeah, I think race actually is important. I think it is uh, semi-real. Um, the way that I talk about it is, uh, I, I don't know, I sort of gave it a nickname or a working name right now, but um, I'm tentatively calling it uh, sociobiological constructivism. Sociobiological constructivism. Um, so what I'm trying to say in that is that race is socially constructed, but that social construction um, manifests in certain, uh, the word would be phenotypic, which is that all the things on the outside, like our skin color, our hair texture, our eye color, you know, our jaw, you know, structure, you know, all these kind of things are, uh, they're not, um, they're genetically informed but they, um, they don't always have the same genetic coding behind what would otherwise look like similar features on the outside. So the next layer up that's still biological is 
phenotype, so phenotypic, is again all of the things that manifest on the outward, um, regardless of what maybe is happening at a genetic or DNA level. Um, and so there is a biological reality to it at that level. Um, and so it's socially constructed, meaning that like, hey, like, um, you know, it tends to be that white people marry white people. You know, black people marry black people. That's not always the case, Katie and I being case in point. Um, but, you know, more often than not, that happens. And so um, when that happens, uh, there's obviously there's social dynamic to that. But then whatever the biology is under that gets reproduced again into another generation and then into a population. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Um, and so it is real races, but it's also non-essential. So a hundred years from now, the races that we recognize may be no longer existent. There may be completely new sort of categories of races. Um, and so it's, that's what, in that sense, is not essential. It doesn't, it doesn't always have to be the case forever and ever and ever that there are white people. Or, you know, what we think of as Asian or black or whatever. Um, and so it is social, socio, biological, and... It is real, but not essential. Hey, come on in, guys. Uh, does that make sense, what I'm saying, everybody? Sorry, I keep looking this way. I forget you guys are on the couch over here. <laughs> um, but is, is that, does that make sense? Yeah? Joy, I mean, not Joy. <laughs> Jessica, does that make sense? Okay, um, cool. Well, I'm just going to pick up where we left off last week and finish our discussion about race, and then we're going to move into a new segment on racism, and then we'll spend three weeks probably talking about this because it will take at least that long. It might be four. Um, so uh, we ended somewhere around here with the kind of redemption period saying that, you know, when we think about race, the key theological idea is union with Christ. And the idea here is that there is one new man, Jesus Christ. The emphasis in the Bible is on our unity not our diversity. And so when you look at Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And this is talking about Jews and Gentiles, okay? So in the Ephesian church, there was, like many churches at the time, you could look at Romans, Corinthians, um, there are religious racial, so those things end up kind of going together when you're talking about, you know, Jewish identity, okay? Um, so there's a religious racial strife going on. And so Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he's reminding them of the gospel. And he says, you know, Jesus himself is our peace, because there was strife, who has made us both, there's two, one, and has broken down in his flesh. So talking about on the cross, so what he did, the symbolic reality of what was going on on the cross in salvation is that he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing. So what is the dividing wall of hostility? Well, it's the laws and commandments expressed in ordinances, um, among other things that separated Jews from Gentiles, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one, one, one new man in place of the two. So there were two Groups. There were two racial categories, and it's not that those are not going to have any meaning or significance anymore, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but that for what ultimately counts in terms of your identity, 
those two are now one, now in the one man. There's a unity with Christ. So making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so there is one new man, Jesus Christ. That is the theological sort of um, centrality of the gospel in the New Testament, is that where there was a multiplicity, there was, there was division, there was um, you know, fighting and hostility, uh, there was the sin of the first Adam, now there is a new Adam, and he is uniting all the nations in himself so that what was promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 is that not only would he be the father of a great nation, but he would be the father of many nations. And the way that this happens is that the, the heir, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, now makes a way for all the nations to come into the people of God, into the one body, into the one man. Does that make sense? Is it accurate to say, kind of, in the history of, of religion and ethnic chauvinism, that this is one of the things that makes the gospel radical? That so you think virtually every civilization that's ever existed, they've had their little god, and their little god would help them win wars against other civilizations with their little gods, and then subordinate that civilization to them and their god, as opposed to uniting that civilization with them on the grounds of equality. Yes, that is, that's at a minimum what we can say, I think, for sure. So that's helpful. Um, and you see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament, you know, kind of starting with the exile and to the end of the Old Testament. Um, so Assyria, Babylon, you know, coming in, taking off, carrying the Israelites out. So you look at someone like Daniel, and you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, we know those names because those are the names that they were given that reframed their identity in Babylonian culture. Um, most of us don't know there were actual names from the beginning of the book, and they were taught Babylonian culture, philosophy, um, language, and uh, all of those practices in an effort to stamp out their original Israelite identity, which was a common practice of the time or whatever. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so the unique thing about Christianity is that... Um, it has this amazing cultural flexibility because it has, you know, obviously a few primary kind of stakes that you hang your hat on, the Trinity, uh, Christ, in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it has this amazing versatility to, to incarnate itself into lots of different cultures. And so it doesn't demand if a society is primarily Christian that that society must make everyone else a certain set of features in order to be a part of this regime. Um, and so it was pretty um, groundbreaking in that sense, religiously, culturally, politically. Uh, so there's one new man. The emphasis in the Bible is on our unity, not our diversity. Race is not nothing, just as a kind of a clarifier. Race is not nothing. Okay, It's, it's not unimportant in some ways, but it is also not everything. And I think a lot of the discourse today would put much more emphasis on the significance of race and how important it is to understanding and living in the world than, uh, than what I'm trying to highlight that the Bible is emphasizing. So race has a place, 
but it is not everything, okay? And, um, and we can talk more about that. So we are united with him and through him. Therefore, Christians are not divided by race and ethnicity. All this is based on Ephesians 2, which we looked at just a second ago. Um, this next idea comes from Galatians chapter 3, which we'll see in just a second. But the, the, the basic idea in Galatians chapter 3 is that in Christ, Christians are not advantaged before God by race and ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, or sex and gender. So if you're thinking about the concept of justification, all right, so are we familiar with that idea of justification um, by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, so that you don't earn your way to God? Makes sense? Like you, you don't do enough good things, you don't have something that's like you're an Israelite, so you're better than everybody else, so you get to go to heaven, that kind of thing. All right, that's what we're talking about. When we say advantage, we're talking about like something that scores you another point over some other guy. So you're not advantaged in getting saved by your race or ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, or your sex or your gender. And so Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so the idea is that you now have like the, the when God the Father looks down on you, you have sort of the robe of Christ on so that when he, uh, the costume of Christ, when he looks down, he doesn't see all your filth. He sees all of Christ's righteousness. And that's, on the, that's the basis on which he judges you. Does that make sense? So there is then, that, that's the idea. There is therefore, on that basis, because you've put on Christ, you've got his righteousness, then there is neither Jew nor Greek, the racial category. You don't, you don't have, you know, uh, extra points because you're a Jew or extra points because you're a Greek, which both of them would have been proud and thinking highly of themselves. But there's also neither slave nor free. The, 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 how much money you have, I'm going to put that as a socioeconomic kind of status, how much money you have doesn't advantage you before God. Or there's no male and female. Your gender, which in that society, female, even being in the list is a joke. It was male-dominated only. So the invention of rights for women in 1919 in the United States of America was revolutionary. All right, but here it actually isn't. Paul's already acknowledging the significance and the inherent value made in the image of God of women. But at the same time, being a male or a female doesn't score you any points either. For you are all now, actually, all of these categories, you're equalized, you're leveled. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Make sense? Just to clarify, it's not saying we're all the same. Correct. It's, saying, it's not saying these categories Again, they exist. Yeah. That Jews and Greeks are exactly the same. We are yep. all invited into and on a level playing field in the body of Christ. That's right. That's right. Yes. It's not, it's not saying that there's not distinctions and difference um, at a general level, but when it comes to the most significant aspect of who you are, I, how, do I, how do I get to be with God one day, uh, there's nothing particularly special about your race or your gender or your sex. So my point from the slide before that was to say that the emphasis in these two passages, and I think if you just went all the way through, is on our unity, not our diversity. That's the emphasis. 
The key word is emphasis. Again, it's not that there's not a place for and meaning for the diversity aspect, but it is that the emphasis is on because we as humans want to emphasize the difference. I mean, historically, all throughout history, that is the thing that we emphasize because we want to put ourselves in the privileged position and therefore everyone else is in some other position. Then Paul's having to combat. James is having to combat. Jesus is having to combat that sinful human instinct to focus on difference and say that that difference that you're so proud of does not do anything for you before God. Make sense? Okay. Last idea here is consummation, the end of all things. All right. So in the new heaven, new earth, the people of God are eternally multiracial. So that's where I'm coming back now. So I've made the emphasis, I've made the case that the, the goal is not in and of itself, some like diversity, diversity, diversity. The goal is actually unity in Christ. But the other thing, the other side of the mouth is the people of God are eternally multiracial. So diverse racial groups will always exist forever. <laughs> like more diversity than you see today. Because as I said, I think that racial categories, while they are real now, they are also um, not essential. So 100 years from now, we may have new racial categories that we've kind of come up with in the world or in society. So the diversity now, yes, there's going to be even more diversity because there's going to be other categories we don't even know about yet or categories that used to exist that, don't, that we don't even factor in. So diverse racial groups united in worship forever. That's good news to me. And that you can have this. But this is actually only possible, this diverse racial grouping, being in the same place forever, because you have this, being united in worship. The idea is that we all have the commonality of heart, affection, of goal, of identity, of purpose. That commonality is the man, Jesus Christ. Or if you want to... Um, even be even more theological uh, and Trinitarian, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We will worship in unison around forever. He's who gives us our identity. He's who gives us our meaning, our significance, our importance. So that's a good day to look forward to. Um, so we're about to shift then to the segment now, this new segment on racism, but any just comments or thoughts or questions at this point? I like the, uh, what's the name of the author who wrote Reading While Black. Um, yes. Huh? Yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I've read the book, but I've heard him, heard an interview with him. I don't know if he said this in the book, but I really like this from the interview where he talks about um, we, he's kind of talking about this in different words, but he talks about how different people groups, we need each other in the body. So, mm. so yes, what you're saying, like our ethnicity or whatever is subordinate to our identity as Christianities, as Christians, but different, different ethnic groups, different um, class groups, uh, people from different neighborhoods. We need each other and we need to see each other as um, 
unified in Christ so that we can listen to each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we all bring different questions to the text. Mm-hmm. So different people are reading. So, I mean, yes, me and Shannon, uh, me and Art are all three reading different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Shannon as a woman is bringing unique questions to the text. Uh, Art's bringing unique questions to the text because he's different than I am. Yeah. But we do come from a similar cultural context. So even Esau Macaulay as a black man in the United States is bringing different questions to the text than a black man in Uganda who has a completely different cultural context. A Christian in North Korea uh, who has a completely different (laughs) state of life. Uh, A child... Uh, an adult, yeah. um, um, a boss, an employee, um, <clears throat> and to be able to sit in a Bible study or an online community uh, or whatever faith community and be able to talk about those things and be like, oh, wow, like I would have never seen that in the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would yeah. have never read that unless we had communion together uh, and we were able to communicate uh, in some way. Yeah. Which is nice in our modern society, a global society. That's one of the good things. But also, if we don't see each other as unified in Christ and equals in Christ, yeah. then we can't appreciate one another's context and ability to inform our own faith mm-hmm. uh, yeah. through their own ideas and their questions that they're bringing to the text. Yeah. Um, because just by the nature of my unique context I have uh, I'm just gonna have a different understanding of uh, uh, of what I'm reading than someone else yeah I think um, I think that's really helpful and I think it underscores a principle that should be more widely recognized and that I would maybe emphasize in a different slightly different direction than where where you're emphasizing and that is that um, all of us have unique backgrounds and experiences that frame the way that we read anything but the Bible in particular. Um, And I would just caution us from um, thinking that there is a categorical way for these different people to read the Bible. Now there, it's not to say that there may not be similarities that, you know, lots of people kind of share in how they think or how they read. Okay. that that's most definitely true. But, um, you know, in your own example, you know, Esau Macaulay or, you know, the, the Haitian brother who maybe transplants here to the United States, um, both black, but there's not a black way that they're going to read the Bible. And so, um, and that's true for, you know, South Koreans uh, versus, you know, uh, Northern Thai or something like that. They might tell a white person or a black person that those people might look very similar and they're both would be Asian Americans, but they're going to have different sets of assumptions. Now they may have some shared assumptions too, but again, um, I think really what we need to be reminded of and recognize is that all of us are going to read differently. And so there's value in all of the body coming together and listening and hearing from each other as we read this text again and again and confess the faith anew again and again because you're going to confess it differently than me, but we should all still be ultimately confessing the same thing. Does that make sense? Um, Art? So the, the best way, one of the better ways I've heard this kind of described is, is like imagine this is sort of the world's greatest potluck. 
So in, in the Bible, I think it's I think it's in Ephesians, I forget where, but it talks about how when we come together, everyone's got a teaching, a doctrine, a psalm, a hymn, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that a friend of mine put it one time, is like, imagine every, everyone shows up with a dish. Everyone shows up with a different dish. And, um, yeah, there's nothing... Yeah, they're all sort of for the same purpose, nourishment and enjoyment and, and things like that. Um, where we're like, really, really missing something is... Is in the absence of diversity, we are. It's like everybody's bringing the same flavor of Doritos, <laughs> like, which is great, I guess. But yeah, there's more to life than Doritos, and there's more. There's more to cuisine. Rarely truer words, my friend. <laughs> One of those things that goes around on like Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day or whatever. Though, I think is, and there's a lot of truth to this. But the meme that goes around says the great irony of, but the great irony of the last 500 years is that Europeans colonized the entire world for spices and they never learned how to use them. <laughs> and I think there's an awful, like, there, there's a really, really important spiritual analog to that, mm. too. Wow. Yeah. Man, that's, that's, uh, that's, I'm going to have to think about that. That's really good. Um, hey, real quick before we move to racism, I just want to, um, for the few people who come, came in uh, after I said this, um, I never actually answered my own question from last week, you know, what is race? Um, and honestly, I meant to make a slide about it, but kind of got caught up into making the next segment since I forgot. But so I'll just say, um, you know, I've been working on my own sort of theory of race, and I'm calling it um, sociobiological constructivism. And what that means for me is that race is socially constructed, um, i.e., White people tend to marry white people. Black people tend to marry black people just, you know, at a empirical level um, because of certain cultural sort of shared things that they feel, oh, like, I can make some assumptions about you because of things that I see. And so let's maybe talk, oh, I like those assumptions are reinforced. Let's get married. Let's make babies. All right. Um, and then the biological piece is that um, there is this, uh, all of the things that present to the world, our hair texture, our eye color, our skin color, our jawline, or whatever. These are called phenotypes in biology, um, and uh, it's different than genetics. Genetics undergird phenotypes, but different genetic coding can, um, from what I understand, can produce similar phenotypes, okay? So there's some difficulty there, but it's biological at the level of when I see somebody embodied in the world with physical distinctions and markers, uh, that's not social in, in the purest sense. But what I'm saying is that actually those things get perpetuated because of social realities, i.e. just, again, empirically, white people tend to marry white people, black people tend to marry black people, and you can do that with lots of different races, right? Um, but the next piece, or maybe a sub-part of that, is to say that it is real yet not essential. It's real in that I live in the world as a black man. And there are certain things that, you know, I can say about my experience that I can personally relate directly to my race, okay? Um, but it's not essential about me. I could have been born some other way. And 100 years from now, black as a category, racial category, may not even exist. So it's not essential. So, um, so that's a little bit more complicated and nuanced than most of the stuff that I've read, at least. Now, there's philosophers at race um, that write about this, and there's, like, three different categories, and that's really, like, esoteric, so I'm not going to go into that, but I'm happy to, like, share that research with you so you can kind of see what, you know, people are actually thinking at a really deep level about what is race kind of thing. Um, so, 
If there's not a question about that, then I will move to racism in the gospel. Okay, and we have about 20 minutes. But we're going to, like I said, this is a four-week deal, so I'm not trying to, like, finish today's talk because we got, we got some time. Um, so racism in the gospel. The goal of this segment is to define racism in a biblically consistent way and apply it to society. Because in order to be just in the city, as this proverbial city, like where you live, um, we must first accurately diagnose the problem. Okay, so um, we have a problem. Not two miles from here, where I used to teach at a inner city school, um, high schoolers, um, not two miles from here, we have a problem in the poorest or second poorest uh, project community. Um, we have a problem there. And how has that come to be? What's going on? How we define that, how we diagnose it, is going to determine how we try to solve it. So if we really care about the two places that I just said, which I do, then we have to get this right. Or we will only do things that, at best, leave it as the same status quo, at worst, make it worse, perpetuate it. Make sense? So I really care about this. And so that's why we're spending a lot of time on it. Um, so our goal then is to define racism in a biblically consistent way and apply it to society. So as Christians, we should be thinking about this in a particular way, framed by lots of pieces in the Christian worldview. Um, but first, we need to know what our options are. Okay? Well, there's three options. Option one is what I'm going to call racism one. And then there's a subspecies called racism 1A. I know, real inventive, right? And creative. Um, but just for clarity's sake, it'll just be easier just to give it one, two, three. So racism 1 is discriminating against people on the basis of race. On the basis of race, basis of race is important. Because there's nuances to all these definitions that if I don't point some of this stuff out, you won't see the difference. So on the basis of race means that um, I deny services to you because I think I'm better than you in a racial way. So me as a black man, see you as a white man, and I decide I don't want to serve you the cheeseburger at the counter because as a black man, I am superior to you as a white man. That's the fulcrum on which my decision to serve or not serve you is turning. That's what I mean by basis. Okay? okay. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, that may sound like obvious, but in just a moment, it's not actually that obvious. In most of the books that I've read, it's, you'll see language like this, but they actually don't mean this. Okay? So you need to know that as you hear people talk, as you listen to podcasts, as you read newspaper articles, like whatever, you'll see language like this all the time, but actually they don't actually mean what I just said. Okay? So that's racism one. And then a derivative of that is racism 1A. And this would be a form of systemic racism. Okay, systemic, structural, institutional. Some people give, you know, 
distinctly different definitions to all of those things, and there's an element to that that I could do. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll just say systemic racism. A, a form of systemic racism is this. It's an infrastructure of rulings, ordinances, or statutes promulgated by a sovereign government or authoritative entity, whereas such ordinances and statutes entitles one racial group in a society certain rights and privileges while denying other racial groups in that society these same rights and privileges. Okay, so that actually comes from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, so the United Nations Human Rights, uh, you might have heard of it. Um, what's important here and why it's a derivative here is because we are talking about the same concept, like denying rights or privileges on the basis of race, like that's the key determinant. And then what makes it systemic is that these are rulings, ordinances, or statutes. These are things that are enshrined in an entire system that are identifiable, that you can see uh, written down on paper, that are then enforced across a large population that everyone has to assent to and agree to. Does that make sense? So the system in this case is, you know, it's a system of law in Alabama, or it's a, uh, it's a set of um, guides and procedures in the HR is given out in whatever your business is. Make sense? Um, so uh, let's see if I have anything else to say about that. Okay. You with me on racism one and one A? Does that make sense, everybody? Art? Just to be clear on specific examples, so Racism 1A is the Chinese Exclusion Act, it's Jim Crow, it's laws prohibiting the Japanese from owning land in California. Yeah, so across American um, history, um, you see the savage, this is uh, from the same um, UN document, um, the savage stain of systemic racism, uh, and America will carry that albatross across her neck for eons, right? Um, here are some examples of systemic racism pulled from the annals of American history. Quote, colored people have to ride in the back of the bus, end quote. Negroes are not allowed to eat with white people. Colored drinking water fountain only. The, this restroom is not for colored people. The Negro does not have the right to vote. We don't hire coloreds. Colored people are not allowed to live in this neighborhood. Segregation and not, um, segregation and not equal for the Negro. Colored only car. Before 1965, any violation of such ordinances or statutes by American Africans, so-called black people, could have resulted in severe punishment or possibly even death. So yes, thank you, Art. With me? Did you have a question, buddy? I thought I saw you raise your hand. No? Okay, all right. Um, racism too, all right. Another option, option two, racism two. Racism two, racism which is hidden, secret, private, covered, disguised, insidious, or concealed. It serves to subvert, distort, restrict, and deny rewards, privileges, access, and benefits to racial minorities. In some cases, individuals or groups may not realize or be aware that they are guilty of covert racism until it is pointed out to them. Okay, so in the last definition, we kind of separate it basically into individual, racism one, and 
group, racism 1A. So I'm following the same pattern here. Individual, all right, and now group. Racism 2A, racism is an entire culture, a comprehensive way of being and doing that is embedded in our structures of meaning, morality, language, and memory, and expressed in our patterns of individual, social, and institutional behavior. Now, I said a lot for both of those. What sticks out to you? What questions do you have as you see that or hear that? I mean, I feel like racism, too, is more of a consequence of racism, one. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way I think of American racism. But Yeah, not in the worldview of the people writing this. So uh, even if I don't have quotes, these are quotes. Sorry, I should have been more diligent about putting quotes. Um, so uh, the first one, race, racism, too, right there, is from a guy named... Rodney Coates um, in a book called Covert Racism, Theories, Institutions, and Experiences. Would you develop a, I don't know. <clears throat> and, and just to be clear, the second one is from two people, uh, Gregory Thompson and Duke Kwan, and that book is Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. You have a, a, a distinct class of individuals who have... Um, moved other individuals into, uh, over time, into a um, system of subservience to them and, uh, and have a very um, um, it's very important to their um, continued existence in their class that this other class be continued to be subverted so they have to create a culture uh, in which this um, mm -hmm. the culture is kind of already there. Yeah, yeah. They have to create a continue, yeah. They have to create a system in which this group is mm -hmm. continued to be subverted because whether or not they are um, less than, they have everyone, everyone uh, who is everyone else. If everyone else is taught and bought in to this system, then they continue to be less than, and that becomes, over time, a culture in which people actually believe, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it becomes a reality mm -hmm. that this group is yeah. less than, and it is important that, uh, and, and, you know, in the case of um, um, uh, in the t case of, like, the secession act uh, in the South, it's important, you know, that these people, like, they believe it so strongly that... Uh, they're willing to fight a war about they're, it. They're willing to fight a war about it, and it's like who they are. And not only not only do they think that it, do they want to keep their reality, but they believe that it's for, like, the good of this other group. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. they uh, are so, doing this. So that is helpful because what it points out is a hid, uh, hidden and missing... Uh, piece in definition two. Does anybody think they know what that hidden and missing piece is? Is it holding people back? Is that the missing piece? No. It's intent. So in what you just described, intention was key. And it actually did perfectly describe 
basically pre-1965. I mean, again, that's a somewhat of an arbitrary date because it's not like people stopped being racist and the culture of the South quit being racist like the next day or something. But just as, as kind of a symbolic point in history, you go pre-1965 all the way back to antebellum, like, yes, um, this belief led to institutional and actual cultural realities embedded everywhere. So these, that really well describes that period, but it's, you added a piece into it that this doesn't need, that definition two does not need, which is intention. So you see it here. Um, let's see, in some cases, individuals or, or groups may not realize or be aware that they are guilty of covert racism until it is pointed out to them. Do we feel like we understand option two? All right. Option three, and this is the third and final option. Hey, man. Better late than never. Oh, thank uh, you. Um, yeah, it's been a journey. It's been oh, a journey. hey, here's your coffee. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. What a great pastor, everybody. Well, I mean, my I'm goodness. I my first batch because it was Starbucks coffee what? and not his coffee. So, you know. Oh, oh man. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> All right, last but not least, uh, racism three, and I've given you three um, uh, articulations, okay? Um, so first one, the idiot, so let me say this, there's not a three A, there's just three, okay? You with me? So the first two followed a pattern of individual and group. This one is just all of it, okay? So... Uh, the ideology that operationalizes race in social institutions involving belief, whether conscious or unconsciously held, in the congenital superiority of one race over others, resulting in privilege for those on top of the racial hierarchy and unequal treatment, exclusion from legal protections, exploitation, and violence for those lower on the hierarchy. Second, uh, racism is white settler racial and cultural prejudice and discrimination supported intentionally or unintentionally by institutional power and authority used to the advantage of whites and the disadvantage of people of color. And then third, the racism as prejudice plus power. Um, white complicity with racism isn't a matter of melanin, it's a matter of power. And so just so you know, the first of those quotes is a um, kind of a compilation, compilation work, uh, and it's, the book is called Can White People Be Saved? Triangulating Race, Race Theology, and Mission. Um, the second in the middle is from Robin DiAngelo and uh, Oslem Sensoy. Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education. And then the third one here is from Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise. There's a now an added component. So if we subtracted from when we got from one to two, from racism one to racism two, we subtracted intent. Well, that's still subtracted. But now from two to three, we add something. Do you know what, we, what we've added here? It's power. It's power. Yeah. So racism is prejudice plus power, but that prejudice can be defined in unintentional ways, where I don't intend to be, you know, discriminating or prejudiced or biased against someone. That's assuming that 
that a white person has power over a black person. The, yeah, well, so another, another premise under this third classification, and I've created these classifications, I'll just be clear. I've created these classifications because there's very, there's very little, um, uh, it, it's hard to put a consistent view on any one person. Does that make sense? So these are the three themes that I've seen in the versions of racism that I've seen through the literature. Okay, so just one second. So, so something that you've put in here in this category in racism three is actually I can't be racist towards you as a white person. Now I can be um, prejudiced, but for it to be racist, I have to have the uh, cultural and institutional power to act on that prejudice. Right. Make sense? So that that's a that's a really interesting kind of undercurrent here in this category. I'm sorry. Yes. I'm just. Is this not just the injection of Marxism into the philosophy? I mean, some people would say that. I mean, we're just, now now we've added just a power hierarchy, and that's the distinguishing factor versus like skin color doesn't matter at that point. Let's inject something that's a known trouble throughout human times. So I mean, that, that's what the third column when mm -hmm. it boils down to he says that the racism isn't a matter of melanin it's a matter of power yeah so racism isn't about race it's a it's, it's it, marxist it's, it's yeah. just become power hierarchies uh -huh. at that point like color doesn't matter like, yeah I'm, I'm seeing that I, yeah i'm interpreting it yeah. similarly. so he's definitely going to say that it's a uh racism is about white people using power against black people that's the idea okay, okay. Um, but I was trying to very clearly pull out this idea for you so you can see all three of these different authors, this one made of like 10 different authors because they all wrote different articles, but there's going to be a great deal of agreement between what you see represented in these three things. Um, Art. So what is gained by taking a term with a agreed upon, easy to understand meaning and loading it up with this? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a harder thing to answer because I'm not the people in the generation who did it, but this occurred in the 1970s. Like, so, politically, this seems to add nothing. Was it easily agreed upon? Huh. Like, no, no, like, this is not easily agreed upon. Like, the, I'm just saying the idea of racism seems to not be easily agreed upon. I, mean, uh, I you know, Traditionally, <laughs> it's meant racism one, which is mm -hmm. not liking people and judging people specifically because of their race. I think here it's it's taking that and 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 yeah. So up till 1970, um, racism one would have been made much more sense to a larger population of people. Um, in 2023, uh, there is not even close to any anybody who engages in the public, which is a minority of the population of the United States of America by far. But anybody who like talks or writes, there's not an agreement at all on between one, two, and three. So to your point, it's not like it's not obvious. Well, yeah, it, it's like this word has a definition. This word means something, and then, uh, but now there's all these nuances that we've added to. It's like com completely different. Uh, not completely different. You've added nuances to mm -hmm. a word for whatever reason. Uh, 
to where it means kind of something different. And I guess that they're saying that it's always meant that mm -hmm. uh, in their view. But, um, mm -hmm. but, but, yeah, I mean, I think Art's point is that racism seems to have like, like this is an ism and this is what it means. Prejudice against one person based on their racial category. Mm -hmm. And then this is a, uh, and then through analysis or whatever uh, of history, we've added uh, a lot of nuance to the definition uh, to the point where some would see it as completely different meaning yeah maybe, but uh, but in maybe maybe of a worthy of a different but in society today in the way that you presented it actually like there's not a we that has come to any agreement like right. we're having a huge culture war about this yeah, absolutely. and part of what's embedded in with all the grenades that are going off and the smoke that you're inhaling you can't see is these little distinctions i pointed out along the way and but those are missed because it's too smoky and I'm like coughing on stuff or whatever. Um, and so I think the first step in being able to, as Christians, engage in this and then hopefully make a difference for people that are at the bottom end of this that we're talking about, we're talking a lot about them, but their lives aren't getting any better, is to actually understand which of these <laughs> is going on is maybe the culprit and then try to come up with an analysis for how do we best ameliorate those problems or those issues. Um, and we can't just unthinkingly absorb what we hear all the time around us, whether it's right or wrong. We actually have, a, have to have a biblical, rational justification for which of these is right. I mean, I've, I've got something that might be beneficial. Um, at the beginning of, of this, um, of this uh, presentation, there was the, the, the fingers, and it was saying, what's the, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. And we're given a list of three options, racism, one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. What if the problem isn't racism, but the problem is sin and hate and uh, partiality based on these, you know, how other people look? And maybe we're going on somewhat of a goose chase goofing around with racism one, racism two, mm -hmm. racism three, when the problem is sin, mm -hmm. how do we... How do we Fix sin. Yeah, well, that's in a, in a broken yeah. world, but by the gospel. That's that's helpful in pointing out kind of the theological truth that has to always undergird all of this, which is like sin is always the fundamental problem. Right. Um, the question, though, has to then be: in what way is sin manifesting for any person at any time? So that, broadly speaking, that could be lust for one person. That can be, you know, uh, materialism for another person. Right. So to look at a person who, you know, spends, you know, inordinately amounts of money on things that they don't need to make themselves feel better about who they are in their relationship to other people and to just say, well, they've got a sin problem. You know, it it's right, but it also lacks more clarity on how we best help someone that's in that position. So in the analogy then is like. Well, yeah, racism is definitely sin at root, like seeing difference between others that is unhealthily magnified and um, blah, blah, blah. But then like being able to put a more definable name on it so we know how to like preach the gospel to that person. So, for instance, uh, you know, Paul, you know, uh, approaches Peter and, you know, in his face in front of everybody in Galatians chapter two, like 
calls him out on separating from the Gentiles because he wanted to look good in front of the Jews. That was a racial moment. It was religious, but it was also racial. Um, and so he had to say, like, you're not keeping in step with the gospel, Peter. Um, and here's how type of thing. All right, we're out of time. But um, my plan for next week is actually I wanted to because I wasn't sure if these would be enough to like give us a picture of, of one, two and three. So I have whole slides devoted to one, to two, to three, to give you more, to get a, that sense of maybe more nuance to each of them. OK, um, hopefully that's not beating, you know, a dead horse or something like that. But I'm trying to give you a fair shake of like, you know, I have my own point of view. But I want you to reasonably be able to see what are the real options out there that people, you know, um, would agree to and not create some like straw like man of of a, of a point of view that doesn't actually exist out there. So hopefully I haven't done that today, but you'll see maybe more nuance that will for sure make us feel a little bit better about whatever view you might end up holding. Yes. But this is a, I just want to point out, this is a really important exercise because you take Two people take Jamar Tisby and someone like like Glenn Lowry. Okay. They can both they can both say racism is a problem, but they mean completely different things, right. completely different different implications because they're using the word racism differently. Yeah. And I would and, and I would argue I'd argue that, that that Tisby and the folks doing the folks on racism three are introducing the they're introducing an innovative and idiosyncratic definition of the word, not in a good way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And. As the final word on that, that's helpful. And as Christians who have the spirit of Christ, the the seeking unity among the body, we should be able to say, like, even if we are both saying racism, but we both know we are meaning different things, that we both have good intentions and that we both see something wrong that we want to see fixed. And that's from the, the that is that is the heart of the gospel, like the love to see God's grace transform a bad situation, basically. Make sense? And so we should be able to come around that in unity and compassion for one another. And like, you know, I really appreciate that you care about this Um, and then have a good civil discussion about the, okay, on what basis are we defining our terms and blah, blah, blah. Because at the end of the day, both of us want to get to the same probably destination, but we see a very different route on how we actually we think we should get there. But we want to see people's lives change at the other end. Make sense? And maybe at the front end, too. Um, so I think that's an important thing as a church we have to remember. Um, God, thank you for this discussion today and how you led it. And I just pray for um, all of us as we think this week more about the things we've talked about. Um, would you just uh, give us a heart for the people that find themselves on the other end of a lot of injustice, a lot of um, pain and brokenness? Would you help us to enter into their lives as you entered into ours, incarnating, carrying our burdens? Um, God, allow us to receive from Austin today as he preaches the word. And would your glory be manifested among us? And would we offer ourselves to you as a pleasing sacrifice? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.